0: can be dismissed. You guys can have a seat. If you guys see that stray dog anywhere, let me know. I don't know if you heard it, but. Well, good morning, everyone. How are you doing? Good, good. Well, I am so thankful that you guys are here with us this morning. My name is Michael Badger. I am, uh, Oh, okay. my son loves playing with this thing, and so I never really know it's status is after he's in my arms. There we go. All right, but like I was saying, my name is Michael Badger. I'm one of the elders here at Redeemer Church, and I am so thankful that you guys are here to worship with us this morning. And as I get going, I want to let you guys know about this excellent book. And I don't know if any of you all have heard of it or not, but if not, you should check it out. It is pretty amazing. It's called The Emotional Life of Our Lord. The Emotional Life of Our Lord. It was written by one of the greatest theologians of the 19th century named B.B. Warfield. B.B. Warfield. And in this book, Warfield reminds us that though Jesus was and is God, he, he, he reminds us that he was also human. He was also a human being. He was and is, as the Heidelberg Catechism described as, very Deus and very homo, which simply means truly God and truly man. Use both. You can't separate them. And what Warfield does so well in this book is to draw out from the passages of Scripture, as the title of the book suggests, the emotional life of Jesus reminding us that Jesus experienced true human emotions like us. And in the chapter titled, Joy and Sorrow, Warfield speaks to the joy in the life of Jesus. His entrance into this world at the Incarnation, after all, at his, at his human birth, was one of glad tidings and great joy. That's how it was described And we see time and time again throughout the life of Jesus these these moments where where Jesus is is celebrating. He's having a good time. He's experiencing the true human emotion of joy. But it's also important for us to remember that this was no superficial or surface level joy. Warfield continues and he says, Joy he had, but it was not a shallow joy of mere joy pagan delight in living, nor the delusional joy of a hope destined for failure, but the deep exaltation of a conqueror setting captives free. The deep exaltation of a conqueror setting captives free. So it made this, this joy of Christ that was rooted in accomplishing his mission of setting free those who are captive to sin, so remarkable and so profound, is that it was intertwined. This this joy that he was feeling was intertwined with great suffering and sorrow. Again, Warfield says, this joy underlay all his sufferings and shed light along the thorn-beset path, which was trodden by his torn feet. So not only was the emotional life of Jesus during his ministry on earth full of joyous emotion, it was also one of sorrowful emotion. And this morning we will be looking pretty closely, pretty intimately at the sorrow Jesus willingly undertook as we follow him into the Garden of Gethsemane in Mark 14, 32 through 42. Not 27. As the slide said. However, I don't want us to forget that it was, as Hebrews 12 2 says, for the joy that was set before him, he willingly endured the despair that we're about to talk about. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I am so grateful this morning that we can all be here together to worship you, to sing praises to your name, to open your word and hear what you have to say to our hearts. And so, Father, I pray, God, there are a million things in this world that are seeking to distract us right now. So many plans, so many different things that keep our lives busy, that want to take our eyes off of you, especially this morning as we, as we are diving into your word. But Father, I pray that you just allow us to remove those things from our minds, those temporal things, those things that aren't going to last past, past next month, next year, even the next 10 years. But Father, I pray that you, that you turn our head, turn our gazes to you, Lord, who gives us eternal life. And Father, I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit is with us this morning, guiding us, Making things known this morning that, that we should hold on to. And I pray that, Lord, that you protect us from error. I pray this in your son's holy and precious name. Amen. All right, so for some of you, part of this sermon is actually going to sound somewhat familiar. Actually, as you, pretty familiar. I actually preached on this passage or its related passage in Matthew. Uh, this past Easter and so if you've been with us for a little while this may sound a, a little bit of the same but but though I preached on it recently I do pray that you don't check out that you that you stick with me because this passage that we're in right now is such an incredible and rich repository of wonderful spiritual nourishment it's a it's a passage that can be mined and mined for forever really and so i pray that even though maybe you remember my sermon from last year or this past year gosh uh that that you still engage in this and you pray that the lord engages you in this but that being said as we know this passage comes at the end of jesus's three-year ministry on earth And these three years, well, actually his entire life really has been building up to what is about to play out in the next several hours. The mission he stepped down out of heaven to take on flesh for was about to be accomplished. The cross is just right around the corner. And what is clear is that Jesus knew this. He knew this. And so after the Passover meal that we spoke on last week... He takes his disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane, which is at the foot of the Mount of Olives. And in verse 32, Jesus tells most of his disciples to sit here while I pray. He tells them to stay put. And then he takes his closest disciples a little bit further in. And it seems like all of the pent-up emotions that were broiling inside of him because he knew what these last hours would entail, what completing his mission would mean for him, began to just engulf him. He was submerged in the cross and what what the cross was going to bear out for him. And take a look at verses 33 through 34. It says, and he took with him Peter, James, and John, and he began to be greatly distressed Jesus became greatly distressed and He said to them, My soul is sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. Can you imagine being the disciples in this moment and seeing the solemn expression on the face of Jesus, the, the distress just written across His visage, and hearing the One to whom they now understand is the Messiah, The one whom they have seen perform countless miracles, speak with authority only God could command. Could you imagine being one of these disciples who are so close to Jesus and hearing Him utter those words? He was saying, my sorrow, my grief is enough to drag me to the grave here and now. And after telling His disciples to remain and keep watch, Jesus goes on a little further. We, we see Him fall on the ground. And I don't know if that's because He was, he was so distraught that His knees just gave way or, or that He just wanted to prostrate in front of God the Father. And in verse 35, we see that He begins to pray to God the Father. Verses 35-36 through 36 says this, And going a little further, He fell on the ground. And prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus actually makes this plea repeatedly. Three times, in fact, we see in the Gospels. The Gospel of Luke's account tells us these little added details. It says, and being in agony... It says that Jesus was in agony. He prayed even more earnestly. And this agony Jesus was experiencing was so intense that Luke tells us that His sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Now why? Why was Jesus in such sorrow? Why was He in such despair and the words of his prayer tell us the source of this agony as he was experiencing in the garden because in his prayer he says specifically remove this cup remove this cup jesus please let it pass from me and so the answer to his despair and sorrow logically lay within where the contents of the cup You see, Jesus' pleas in His prayer to the Father. These pleas are, are actually a reference to Isaiah 51, 17, which says, Wake yourself, wake yourself, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of His wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl the cup of staggering. You see, as one commentator put it, this cup contains the full vehemence and fierceness of God's holy wrath against all sin. In the vivid imagery of the Old Testament, this cup is also said to be filled with fire and sulfur and a scorching wind. And the same commentary said, it is like some volcanic firestorm, like all of the fury of Mount St. Helens' eruption concentrated within a coffee mug. And now the Father is taking this terrible cup And He is placing it before His only begotten Son. And so it is no wonder that as Jesus stares into this vessel in Gethsemane that He falls to the ground and He begins to sweat blood. He was about to drink in God's wrath. And that is why there is terror and deep distress and sorrow flowing through Him at this moment. And brothers and sisters, what is so incredible here, what, what we need to realize is that this cup does not rightfully belong to Jesus. you get that? This cup shouldn't belong to Jesus. Scripture tells us plainly that the contents of this cup rightly belongs to all of sinful humanity to drink in. And so what does that mean? It means that this fiery cup of wrath is, is your cup. And that, that cup of wrath is, is my cup. It belongs to us. It's rightfully meant for us to take on, to drink in, to, be, to be, have, its, have its contents poured out on our heads. And the whole mission of Jesus taking on flesh, being truly human and truly God, was so that he could save his people from having the cup of God, the, the, of, the cup of God's wrath justly and rightly poured out upon him. That was the mission of Jesus. Jesus takes on the tremendous weight of the guilt of our sins so that that judgment that we deserve would pass over us onto Him. As we have said in many sermons before, and that that bears repeating because it gets forgotten so often in our culture, that you are not merely Saved from sin, if you're a believer in this room, though you were. And if you're a believer in this room, you're not merely saved even from hell, though you were. But ultimately, what you are saved from, if you're a believer in this room, is you're saved from the wrath of God. We can't forget that. You are saved from this dreadful cup. When you go out and go share the good news of Jesus Christ with people, we've got to be sure that we give them the whole picture. So here in the garden, Jesus is now about to be brought face to face with the abhorrent reality of bearing the guilt of our sins and becoming the object of God's full and furious wrath. And so we hear Jesus crying out, Father, if there is any other way to pay for the sins of your children, if there is any other alternative, if it is possible that this pa- cup pass from me, please make it so. And I can't remember who it was, but one scholar points out that we can notice in all four gospel accounts, the response from the Father is silence. It's silence. If you look at all four Gospels, we see that he pleads a second time and then he pleads a third time. Silence. Silence. If there was an alternative to the cup of wrath, surely the Father would have provided it. But the pleas of the Son, despite the horror that was set before him, was met with silence. And again, we are left wondering why. Why did the Father not say anything back to the Son? Why why did the Father not remove this awful cup from Jesus? And well, friends, I want you to listen to this popular verse as if you were listening to it for the very first time. Pretend that you have never heard this verse before because the answer to this question of why did the Father not remove the cup of wrath from Jesus is this. For God so loved the world. God so loved the world. For God so loved the world that He is silent at this moment when His Son appeals for an alternative. He is silent because the price for your sin and mine is the just wrath of God. Because the punishment for our iniquities and rebellion against God, Romans 6 tells us, is death. And the only way that Jesus could be our Savior and pay the price for our redemption is to take that cup from the hands of the Father and instead of pouring every single last drop on your head and on my head like we deserve, He instead, out of love that we cannot ever hope to begin to comprehend, willingly submits to the will of the Father saying after every plea, as we see in verse 36, yet not what I will, but what you will be done." soon after being in the garden for the joy set before him of seeing his people saved he'll put the cup of wrath freely to his lips and he will drink it all he'll drink it all leaving not a drop for anyone who put their faith in him and him alone how incredible is that for God so loved the world for God so loved you that he drank that fiery cup of that. Now after the first instance of Jesus praying to the Father in the garden, he walks back to where he left Peter, James, and John. And if you remember, they were meant to be awake, right? They weren't to be falling asleep. They were meant to be staying alert and keeping watch. Jesus had just told them moments ago that he would be betrayed by one of their own. Do you remember that? When when he was uh, celebrating the the institution of the Lord's Supper with them, the very last Passover, he said that one of you, one of the twelve, is about to stab me in the back. And so of all the times that you would think that the disciples would be watchful and prayerful, it would be now. But when Jesus found them, he literally found them sleeping on the job. They were passed out. I don't know if we can ever understand the depths of the lowliness felt by Jesus our Savior in these few hours before the cross. Because He's in anguish, right? He is in anguish in such a way that, that we can't even wrap our minds around, awaiting His betrayer to come, thinking of the judgment of the Father that will be thrust upon Him, and His disciples, His, his closest friends, are asleep. They gave way to their fatigue and they left Jesus to pray alone. But because Jesus is kind and is still thinking of the well-being of his disciples, he uses this moment as a time to teach and a time to warn. If you will, take a look at verses 37 through 38. It says, and he came and found them sleeping. He said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Do you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The Spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Peter, as you will hear more about in a couple weeks, just finished telling Jesus that he would never forsake him. Not only that, but, but that he would even die for Jesus if need be. But now Jesus comes to him and says, could you not even stay awake for an hour for me? Do you realize the irony here? Could you not fight off your sleepiness for just just one single hour to keep watch and to to pray? I just told you I'm in great agony. I'm in great distress. And you fall asleep. So Jesus warns them to watch and pray lest temptation lures them into sin. And not only did the disciples need to heed Jesus' words here, but you and I do as well. You see, Peter, the same Peter that we see here in our passage, tells us in 1 Peter 5, 8, that we should be sober-minded and watchful. You guys, are you guys familiar with that passage? We should be sober-minded and watchful. Why? Because Satan, the enemy, the devil, is prowling like a lion seeking someone to devour. And then James, the human brother of Jesus, says this in James 1, 13 through 15. It says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So we see at least two sources of evil and temptation that we face in our lives, right? The first is, as Peter says, the very real enemy, Satan and his demons. They plot And they scheme, and they whisper lies. They entice, they tempt, they distort truth. Their aim is to destroy and sow discord and faithfulness in our hearts. And they are very real. We see this clearly in so many passages in Scripture, but perhaps none more clearly than Satan tempting Jesus in the wilderness. He tempts Jesus by warping Scripture, by, by trying to manipulate its meaning and give leeway to Jesus to, to give in to sin just a little bit. And Satan uses the same tactics on us, right? He, he whispers lies about us. He whispers lies about Scripture into our ears. He tries to distort how we perceive God or, or he attempts to downplay the seriousness and consequences of us falling to temptations that are in front of us and, and so much more. Not only that, and this is just a quick aside, but he even tries to convince us that we as believers, as those who have victory in Christ, should be afraid of demons and afraid of the enemies. They hate that we have no one to fear but God himself. And that we can stand over demons and Satan triumphantly because we are children of the Lord Most High and we are indwelled with the Holy Spirit. We have nothing to fear. So don't listen to those lines. But James says, remember, that there is another source of temptation. And it is not found externally in Satan's and demons, but it is found right in our own hearts. Do you remember when we talked a couple weeks ago about Jonathan Edwards and the affections of our hearts? Remember that? If you don't, my feelings won't be hurt. Well, James in chapter 1 says, and he's talking to believers here, that even though we are believers, our hearts are still wrestling with our sinful natures. Meaning like our, our affections, the affections of our hearts, what, what drives our hearts are still at times pulled in the wrong direction. And we can be lured and enticed by our very base desires. And there's a lot of them. We've got a lot of desires. These desires can be a desire to be, to be loved or appreciated, to not be lonely or make sure everything is done the right way, a desire to control like Martha, the sister of Mary. A desire can be sex, or, or power, or greed. And as James says, these desires within us can entice us and lure us into sinfulness quicker than we can understand. The affections of our hearts can be oriented inwardly to ourselves. And we are tempted to satisfy those desires in us by any means that we see fit, despite what Scripture has to say about it. But here in our passage, in Mark 14, verse 38, Jesus gives us the strategy, the strategy for fighting against temptation, whether it comes from within or from without. He says to watch and pray. Watch and pray. In that same passage where Jesus is being tempted by Satan in the wilderness, which can be found in in Mark 1 or or, uh, Matthew 4 for a little bit longer of an account of it, Jesus demonstrates how we are to be watchful. How we are to be watchful. If you have your Bibles open, or have your Bibles with you, I I encourage you to open them up to Matthew 4, verses 1 through 3. Matthew 4, verses 1 through 3. This is uh, the beginning of the account of Jesus in the wilderness when he's being tempted by Satan it says then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil and after fasting 40 days and 40 nights he was hungry kind of a given and the tempter came and said to him if you are the son of God command these stones to become loaves of bread and at this moment Jesus's flesh was weak to say the least he had been fasting for 40 days I can barely make it past noon. He was desperately hungry and physically weak. And this is when the enemy decides to pounce. He tempts Jesus by telling him that he could simply turn these rocks into bread and feed himself. He, He tempts him to break his fast that he is doing in obedience to the Father and give in to his desire to not be hungry anymore. His desire for food. There was no no need to continue in this time of prayer and fasting when he was so hungry. It's been 40 days after all. Look how Jesus responds to this temptation in verse 4. He says, but he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You see that? Jesus recognizes Satan's temptation, and he responds by quoting Scripture. And the Scripture that he quoted was was that God's word is sufficient enough for me. Brothers and sisters, I do not believe it is possible to be watchful in the way that Jesus is speaking of here in our passage without saturating ourselves first in his word. The only way that we can recognize and respond to temptations in our lives in a godly manner is if we know God's Word. That's it. It sensitizes us to the sinfulness in our own hearts, to the wickedness that still resides inside of us, and it opens our eyes to the schemes of the devil. We desperately need God's Word. Desperately. Like James says, God's Word is like a mirror that shows us all of the the grime and all the dirt on our faces. It shows us all those areas in our lives where we are spiritually weak and deficient that we need to watch over. And it clues us in on the schemes and the strategies of the devil. And so how are we to know what is an ungodly temptation in our lives if we don't know what is godly to begin with? And this is why the psalmist says in Psalm 105, Your word is a lamp unto my feet. It shines a light on the temptations that want to drag us into sin and death and it guides us into the arms of God who is our refuge and our strong tower against all ungodliness, against temptation and sin. So Jesus is imploring His disciples and He's imploring you and I to watch out. To be alert to the danger of temptation. But we must bathe ourselves in the Word of God if we are to be truly watchful. He then tells them to not only watch, but also to pray. In our wrestling with our sin natures, that by the grace of God we will someday be totally free from, we still have a bent towards self-reliance. Right? We at times think that we can fight our temptation in sin in our own power, by ourselves. And Jesus here is reminding the disciples that not only are they to be watchful, but they must rely on the power of God to be the one who truly delivers them from that temptation. You see that here? Watching without praying is still self-reliance. We can study the scriptures, we can recognize the temptation when it approaches, and we can even know that we should run from it. But what happens when we are not prayerful, not going to God in these moments? We often end up saying the exact opposite of Jesus in the garden, right? We end up saying, not not what you will, God, but what I will, God. I know your will, God. I know what you want me to do here. But I'm going to put that to the side to satisfy my own will. We rely on our own strength, and more often than not, we fall to sin. And this is why Jesus takes care to teach His disciples that this should be a common prayer for them. It should be always in the midst of our prayer. You remember the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, specifically verse 13, right? When the disciples are are wanting Jesus to teach them how to pray because they want to be able to pray like Jesus and they don't know how to do it. And so Jesus leads them in what we call the Lord's Prayer. And in the Lord's Prayer, in verse 13, He says, He says what? He says, Lead us not into temptation. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We must rely on God to give us the strength and grace to overcome temptations that crash into us by the schemes of the devil and our own still sinful hearts. We all deal with this, always. And we need God. These two things go hand in hand, watchfulness and prayerfulness. You can't try to do one without the other. You notice that Jesus doesn't just say, be watchful or just be prayerful. We need both. We need both. And what Jesus says next in verse 38, I don't know about you guys, but hits home far more than I would like to admit. It says, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. I feel this verse very deep in my heart. And if you guys don't feel it too, at least I, I know I'm not alone completely because the Apostle Paul feels it as well. He says as much in Romans 7:15. You know what it says there? It says, For I do not understand my own actions. I don't know what I'm doing. For I do not do what I want to do. Namely, follow Jesus with his whole person. But I do the very thing I hate. I I don't do the thing that I want to do. I don't follow Jesus with everything that I have, but I often do the things that I hate, which is sin, which is go against my Savior, my Creator. I I don't know what I'm doing. This is exactly what Jesus is talking about here. What Jesus is saying to the disciples here is this, your spirits are desiring to follow me, but your flesh is weak. And the weaknesses of the flesh cause you to allow yourselves to fall into temptation and sin. Man, friends, can't you relate to that? Now, to get somewhat nerdy on you guys for just a split second, the Greek grammatical structure of this passage indicates that Jesus is not just talking about the flesh in the sense of our still sinful inclinations, in this particular passage. You see, the New Testament uses flesh in a couple different ways. The first is when it's talking about the flesh, it's talking about our uh, still struggle with sin while we are on this earth, right? We're believers, but our flesh still struggles with sin. But the other way is a little bit more simple. The flesh sometimes is talking about just our bodies, right? Our human bodies. And so here in this passage the way that the way that the greek is is set up and is worded it seems to also indicate our actual human flesh our human bodies our actual human bodies and their witnesses can cause us to fall to temptation if you don't understand how this is think about just these these few and, and I'm, I'm underlining the word few because there's, there's a lot more I could add to this list. But just these few physical weaknesses. Hunger. Thirst. Exhaustion. Illness. Physical pain. Now think of how quickly your attitude, your personality, the amount of grace and love that you show to others, your obedience to Jesus, is affected by just these Just these five things. Friends, the word hangry doesn't exist without a reason. Often we can have a deep desire to follow Jesus. To honor Him with our lips and our actions. But how often does that desire disappear as soon as we get just a little too hungry? Just just a little too sleepy? How often do we allow our sinful hearts to pass? How often do we give ourselves an allowance for sin when a physical need of ours is not being met to our satisfaction? I can't tell you how often I've allowed my anger to hold sway over me because my poor tum-tum was a little hungry. So I ask you, when was the last time you treated someone poorly? Or you allowed yourself a, a little sin to accommodate the weakness of your flesh? amazing how quickly we can do that. In all these instances of our lives, as we are living out our Christian walk, we can we can be uh, shocked and surprised at somebody else who is who is uh, being uh, just a jerk and being like, "Oh man, that guy is that guy's got a problem. That guy needs Jesus." But then, if we had a poor night's rest, we can look exactly like that guy. But we give ourselves a pass and we say things like, "Oh, I was just tired that night." I didn't sleep well that night. I'm just, I'm kind of hungry. You know, it's just because I'm hungry. Man, I don't think God cares that much about how hungry you are in terms of your obedience to Him. Remember that Satan tempted Jesus not before he fasted, for 40 days, but after. He sought to tempt him when he was physically the weakest. And on anyone but Jesus, probably would have worked, would well, have worked on me. Not day 40, but hour 4. We must keep watch and pray that even in our human physical weaknesses, God delivers us from temptation and sin. Because though our spirits desire to follow Jesus, we still desperately need Him because our flesh is weak. Verses 39 through 40 of our passage then tells us that Jesus goes away again to pray to the Father, the same prayer as before, pleading with him to take away the cup of wrath, but triumphantly submitting to his will. And then again, he comes back to his disciples sleeping. And out of what I am sure is a combination of shame and embarrassment, the disciples don't know what to say to Jesus when he wakes them up. So I think it's really funny. They were like children caught sleeping in a cookie jar. And then he goes away and he comes back a third time and he says to them in verse 41, Are you still sleeping? Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Three times. Three times they fell asleep. But friends, how, how like the disciples are we? Right? How like the disciples are we? It seems as if the three men here were just indifferent to the words of Jesus. He made them well aware of their desperate need to remain watchful and their desperate need for spiritual strength, for the impending temptation that all 11 of the remaining disciples will soon face as Jesus is arrested and crucified. And yet again, they allowed themselves to succumb to their physical weakness. But we are so often the same, are we not? We can hear God's Word preached We can know that we must be in the Word, that we must be watchful, and we know that we must keep watch that our physical weaknesses in our own flesh do not cause us to give way to sin. We can know that, and we know that we must be vigilant in our prayers and lean wholly on the strength of God, but we so often go astray. We, like the disciples, must be reminded time and time again that spiritual victory over temptation and the enemy goes to those who are alert in prayer and depend on God. And that self-confidence and unpreparedness leads to spiritual disaster. We need reminding of that. Jesus continues in verse 41 through 42 saying that they had enough rest. The hour has come. He says, The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Judas arrives on the scene. Now, as I conclude this sermon, I want us to remember this point that was made by another pastor in church history as we think on this passage as a whole. This is a beautiful truth that I'm about to share with you guys from this this pastor. Because in times of temptation, we can often feel alone and ashamed. At least that's my experience anyway. And yet in this passage that we just got done walking through, we see Jesus' loving heart towards his beloved disciples. Do you see that? And we see that the love of Jesus did not dissipate a single iota even when He was in the midst of His own torment that outstrips anything that we can possibly imagine. And if His loving heart for His disciples didn't wane even in the Garden of Gethsemane, what does that mean for His loving heart towards you and I here and now? His pastor says this, that even in the middle of the most consummate agony of his entire existence as an eternal being, as God himself, Jesus is still concerned about his disciples. And isn't that the kind of high priest we need? He continues saying, we have such a sympathetic, merciful, compassionate high priest who even in the garden, in the middle of a cosmic, supernatural struggle of epic proportions, incomprehensible to us, pauses his time in prayer and goes out because he is concerned about the spiritual vulnerability of his friends, his disciples. That, that is the heart of our great priest. Wow. Praise God for that. That's the heart of Jesus. That's the heart of our Lord and Savior. And he ends by saying this. He says, so just in case you have ever wondered whether in the busyness of all that Jesus does that he forgets you, don't wonder anymore. No matter how intense the struggle is, no matter if you have to go to him time and time again for strength and forgiveness, your great high priest has you always in his heart. As the hymn says, your name is graven on his hands, your name is written on his heart, and he ever lives to make intercession for us. Oh, praise God. So brothers and sisters, even in our physical and spiritual weaknesses, the love of the Savior never fades, and it never grows tired. It never waxes, and it never wanes. And if you trust in his name alone for the forgiveness of your sins and repent, you will never have to drink from that cup of wrath and you will be ushered into his kingdom as his friend. That's our great high priest. That's our savior. That's the the heart of our good shepherd. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I am so thankful for your son. King Jesus, even even in the midst of the Garden of Gethsemane, when you are battling temptation on a cosmic proportion, Lord, your heart was still on your disciples. So, Father, even even as we are fighting temptation in our own lives, Lord, I pray, God, that you remind us time and time again that we must rely on you and we must be nourishing ourselves and and preparing ourselves with your word that we can't do this alone. And, Father, when we do fall to that temptation, God, we can feel shameful. And we can feel guilty. And we can want, we we can desire to do anything but fall at your feet. We want to we do like what Adam and Eve did in the, in the garden and just hide from you. But Father, you you beckon us to come to you. Lord. You call us forward as your children. And you remind us of what you accomplished on the cross on our behalf. That all of our sin has been forgiven that the weight and the guilt and the judgment from that sin was poured out completely on your son. And we can experience right relationship with you because of that. But Father, I also pray that you remind us that that does not give us a license to sin. Father God, I just pray, Lord, that your spirit impresses upon us those things that you want us to to learn this morning. I pray this in your son's holy and precious name. Amen.